Well, happy Easter. We believe that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We believe that he was crucified and three days later walked out of that tomb and showed that he had conquered sin and death. We've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, which is Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. And we're going to look this morning at his account of Jesus' resurrection on Easter Sunday. Matthew chapter 28, if you have a Bible, says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, which is Jesus' mother, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone that sat on it. You may know this, you may not, but they had placed a large stone in front of the entrance to the tomb. You know, our cemeteries are big fields where we, you know, dig holes about six feet deep and we lower the caskets down. Their tombs would have been more like caves or stone mausoleums that you could then enter and then there would be places where they would encase the body. But because there had been a concern that somebody would try to steal Jesus' body because he had said that he would rise from the dead, they put a stone in front of the entrance so large that no one person could move it, and the guards were placed in front of it. So this angel comes down. You can just see him kind of walking past the guards, moves the stone, And the guards, verse 4, were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, the gals are there. They've come to see. And the angel says to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly to his disciples. He is risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So he's done his job. He's opened the tomb. He's talked to the women. He's proclaimed the good news. And now he, he gets his job done and, and gets an attaboy. Verse 8, so the woman, women hurried from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards got, you know, got their senses back together. And it says that they went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep him, keep you out of trouble. So basically, if you failed in your assignment, especially guarding something as a Roman soldier, it was a death sentence. You kept your prisoners or they did not escape. And there's other parts in the New Testament that kind of emphasize this fact. What the chief priests say is, look, you guys are dead men anyway, but we have a story we want you to tell. So we're going to take care of you. This is the story you tell everybody. And if somebody tries to make trouble for you, we will make sure that it's taken care of. 
So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely cir circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples, because remember Judas, the twelfth disciple, had hung himself because he had betrayed Jesus, went to Galilee, to the mountains where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is God's word, and we are so thankful that God's word declares the risen Jesus conquering sin and death. This is Matthew's Easter story. Matthew proclaims the risen Jesus. Now that might seem like something that you go, oh yeah, yeah, the, the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. But think about this. Matthew was one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, the disciples. Matthew had spent the better part of three years, day in and day out, following and living with and serving and learning from this messianic figure, Jesus of Nazareth. And Matthew was there in the garden on the night Jesus was betrayed. And Matthew, like the other disciples, fled. Instead of standing with him like they all said that they would, he fled. And Jesus was crucified. And Matthew proclaims that someone he knows, not just to be dead, but to have been publicly executed. Matthew proclaims that someone he knows to be dead was fully alive. He said, it's Jesus. It's, it's, not that, it's not that it was like somebody who bore a resemblance to him. It's not that it was somebody, you know what, um, you, you get these stories of like, I, I, I knew somebody 30 years ago, and then now 30 years later, I meet somebody who claims to be him, but I'm unclear because, you know, time has passed and people change. This is somebody that three days ago, I knew to be dead. Three days ago, I knew this person to be dead, and now I see them with my own eyes. I, I touched his shoulder. I, I held his hand to make sure he was real. I heard his voice. Matthew says that Jesus rose from the dead. That doesn't get enough emphasis. That over 500 eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ. People interacted with someone they believed to be a formerly dead person. Matthew proclaims, this is what I saw. And he is crystal clear. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. He also identifies the witnesses. He says, you want to know the truth of this? There were women there, faithful women, who went to the tomb. The, another gospel tells us that the reason that they went there was because there had been so little time, they hadn't been able to do the proper burial rituals that was common among their culture. There just hadn't been time for it before the Sabbath and where they could not do that work. And so they had come as early as they could so that they could show a last act of devotion or love to their master. And as they get there, they find the tomb rolled away. They find an angel waiting for them, telling them, hey, he's not here. Go inside and see. 
He says, here are the witnesses. He also identifies some other witnesses. He says, the evidence, the, another witness isn't a person, it's a place. That the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that was used, people know where that is. It's not hard to find. You could go to Jerusalem, and where Jesus was laid is now empty. I think that's actually something that gets a little bit overemphasized in modern times. You know, the, the, one of the really common sayings I heard when I was growing up in the church was, you know, you can go find the tomb of Buddha and you can find the tomb of Joseph Smith. <laughs> you can find the tomb of Joseph Smith and you can find the tomb of Muhammad and you can find, you know, all of these tombs of religious leaders and philosophers and thinkers, but Jesus' tomb is empty. Sure. I also recognize that there are people we don't know, uh, famous and, and, and infamous uh, religious or spiritual or philosophical leaders where we don't know where they're buried for certain. Um, so that, to me, is less powerful as evidence today. But the further you go back in time, the more powerful as evidence it becomes. So to me, the evidence of the empty tomb is strong because of how accessible it was for those early Christians, that they could literally just go and walk over to where Jesus' body had been placed and see that he was no longer there. And it is their testimony that speaks to our day because they stood and said, we saw him die. We, we know where they buried him. And we have been to that empty tomb. And not only did we see an empty tomb, but we interacted with a risen Savior. So Matthew says, this is my testimony. I saw Jesus. Here are some witnesses who were there when he was risen from the dead, the, the first people to see him alive. And he says, here is the place you can go to see the evidence for yourself. And then he continues to share his story. It's each gospel. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one tells the same truth from a different perspective. And I think it's a different complementary perspective. But each of them tell their story and their perspective. And he emphasizes the testimony of these women because they were the ones that told him. Think about it. Who told Matthew that Jesus was alive? It was these women. So for him, they loomed large in his story. You know, there are people who loom large in my story that would be very unimportant to you if I were to say this person is a witness to Jesus Christ being alive, risen from the dead. I don't think it would have so much weight for you because they were part of my story, but you don't have a connection to them. Matthew emphasizes the testimony of these women because they were the ones who told him. He also emphasizes the time in Galilee. If you've read the other Gospels, you know that before they went to the Galilee, Jesus appeared to the disciples in Jerusalem. And when he says uh, at the end of Matthew chapter 28 that some doubted, he's speaking, of course, of Thomas, who gets this nickname Doubting Thomas. And Jesus appeared, but Thomas wasn't there. And so then he comes back, and all the disciples say that we saw Jesus. He was here. And Thomas didn't believe until Jesus appeared again. And Thomas actually, like, you know, held his hands where the nails had pierced him, and, and he believed then. 
It's not that Matthew is lying or telling a different version. He's just fast-forwarding to where the other Gospels tell us that they went up to the Galilee and spent time with Jesus there. There's about 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and when Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, ascended into heaven. During those 40 days, he was not always in Jerusalem. He spent time up in the north part of Israel, the Galilee region. And Matthew emphasizes it because for him, for him, that was important, right? You could tell, what's the story of the last three years? Or what's the story of the last year? Or you could get a bunch of people together for an event and have them recount the story. And you get different perspectives. It's not that they're untrue. It's just that as you get these different perspectives, as you get these different perspectives, you get a fuller picture of the story. So for some of the other apostles in their Gospels, they emphasized encountering Jesus right after his resurrection in Jerusalem because that was the big impact for them. But for Matthew, it was that time spent in the Galilee. You know, the other week, some of you know that um, my son had COVID, and so we were all on quarantine, and I was supposed to go to two days of meetings and couldn't because I, you know, was on COVID quarantine, and I was waiting to get test results back, and, uh, you know, I didn't have it. Only, only my oldest son did, but, um, but we were all kind of staying hunkered down for a few days. But because I couldn't go to those meetings, I started just having conversations, phone calls, text messages, whatever, with people who I knew were there. And there was not agreement on what they emphasized. Not everybody emphasized the same thing, you know, uh, one person emphasized, yeah, there was because these were like day-long meetings, right? So somebody said, well, the most important thing was the, the first part of the meetings. And somebody else, all they wanted to talk about was uh, the conversation and the informal parts during lunch, right? It's all true. Like, as I've heard, you know, now about 10 people who were at that meeting and I've heard from them, nobody's disagreeing about the big story. They're just emphasizing different parts, different perspectives, So what Matthew's doing is he's just sharing his story. The women were important because they told him that Jesus was alive. The time in the Galilee was important because for him, that was formative and shaping him for the mission and the ministry that Jesus was to give him. And at the end of chapter 28, as we read, Jesus gives them that great commission. Go out into the whole world. Tell everybody. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so for Matthew, that time in the Galilee with Jesus was so formative, so he shares it. Matthew proclaims the risen Jesus. He shares his story. And then he answers the questions of the day. He answers the questions of the day. What do I mean by that? Well, every generation, every generation has its own questions. Every generation has its own uncertainties. Every generation has its own doubts, and every generation has its own assumptions. One of the big challenges that we have in this cultural moment is that we are in a generational handoff. The the boomers are shifting to the millennials. The Generation X folks are kind of caught in between, and Gen Z's back behind them going, hey, we're here too, right? But there is a big generational handoff between the baby boomers and the millennials, and those two generations have different shared assumptions and different questions. My parents' generation, the baby boomers, the, one of the big 
predominant underlying questions is where is this all going? How is this going to end? They grew up under the threat of nuclear war. Uh, they grew up in the Cold War. They grew up with all these like constant like what's going to happen? And the church had answers for that. Hey, the Bible talks a lot about the future. And that's why you saw the emphasis on Bible prophecy and the end times and all that. But then what happened was the millennials came along. And they grew up with all of these questions being answered that were not their questions. The millennials, by and large, did not have the same questions, the same doubts, or the same shared assumptions or certainties that the boomers had. And so the church, for a while anyway, was not speaking to their questions. And I believe the church has shifted or is shifting to addressing those questions, at least in large parts, but that's the calling that all of us have. And those of us who are millennials, there's going to come a time when our generation begins a shift and hands off to those below us. And we have to make sure that we're addressing their questions, right? Their, their questions are different than today's. You can read church history and find that in the third century, Christians were arguing about something that, that Christians across the board would go, oh, that's a settled issue. It's no question about that. Why? Because they were dumb or they had something off or what? No, they just had different questions, different uncertainties, different doubts. In Matthew's day, he addresses the questions, not just of his own day, but of his own context. Matthew largely writes to people who were Jewish, people who grew up in the area of Israel. Whereas, you know, Mark or John, who, who had, you know, John wrote much later. Mark was writing in a more Greek, Greco-Roman kind of culture. So they answer different questions. Uh, Luke who he himself was not Jewish and he's writing to a non-Jewish audience, had to explain a lot of things like, okay, they were doing this and this is why. Matthew was just addressing the questions of his day, his moment, his context. He says, hey, there's a bunch of people that say the guards said that people stole Jesus' body. Now that's a story that doesn't hold up. I said a minute ago that if you're a guard in the Roman army and you lose your prisoner, or if you were supposed to guard a box, doesn't even matter what the box is, you are supposed to guard this box, you lose that box, you're done. You're dead. So Matthew's saying, hey, that charge doesn't hold up. If they really stole the body of Jesus from these Roman guards, those Roman guards should have been executed, but they weren't. Matthew is saying, hey, the chief priests are spreading this story, but they're lying. Matthew's addressing the questions of the day, just as Christians in our day have a responsibility to do the same. So let me say this. You have to deal with the claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Matthew, the apostles, the Christian faith makes this claim that God became a person, fully God, fully human, that Jesus lived a perfect life, demonstrated through deeds and words and miracles that he was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. And that he went willingly to his death as the sacrifice that would pay the penalty, the justice that our sins, your sins, my sins, everyone's sins demanded. And that he proved that he conquered sin and death by rising from the dead three days later. That's the claim of the Christian faith. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, 
that we have a way of salvation made for us. Everyone has to deal with that. But every person and every generation is going to have different uncertainties and questions. Just like Matthew said, they saw Jesus and believed, but some doubted. That's okay. What I'm inviting you to do is if in this moment you say, I believe, then to respond to that belief. If in this moment you say, I have been walking away from God, I have been walking in rebellion to God, but I know that in my heart, I know that Jesus rose from the dead, then respond to that belief. But if you're in a place where you're saying, hey, I'm open to this idea, but I have questions. Hey, I don't agree with you, but you seem serious about your belief. Let's talk. Because what we want at Faith on Hill is to not just be a place that tells you what we believe, but we want to hear you and answer questions. So this is an invitation to respond. If you have faith in your heart right now, if you have belief in your heart right now, if you have sorrow in your heart for what you have done, the sin, the wickedness, the rebellion, then this is an invitation to believe and be forgiven. Remember that Matthew was one of those who abandoned Jesus, who did not stand with him, and yet Jesus forgave him and restored him and gave him a purpose. And that invitation is for you. And if you're in a place where you say, I'm not ready yet, but I have questions, then there's an invitation to join in this community and ask your questions and be heard and be safe and, and work through things. Because we could say, oh, I have a question about that. I've got a doubt about that. And then walk away. Well, I haven't really dealt with my doubt. I haven't really dealt with my question. I've just used it as a way to deflect so that I don't have to deal. But we're inviting you to deal with Jesus and to consider that somebody who people knew to be dead three days later, was shown to be alive. And people who, you know, people who saw him, including Matthew, went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, had risen from the dead and was the Savior of the world. That is our great hope this Easter and every Easter. God bless you. We'll be back together this week in our small groups. You can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. You can follow us on social media at Faith on Hill, and our podcast feeds are Apple Podcasts, Spotify. You just have to search Faith on Hill. If you have questions, email adam at faithonhill.com. And if you want to know more about the small groups, again, you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com. It's a great place to come and discuss and process. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus still saves people, brings them out of darkness, and brings them into light.